Hello, and welcome to the podcast, So You Were Born and Then What?, sponsored by the Next Gen Collective and Northern Trust. This is the podcast where we hear the stories and learn the legacies of influential and interesting people from a diverse set of backgrounds. We're your co-hosts, David Starr and Frank Petaway. Frank, who do we have with us today? We have Mr. Stacy Bolton with us today. Stacy is a compliance and ethics professional with over 25 years of experience in the financial services industry, specializing in banking, brokerage, and capital markets regulatory compliance in a multinational environment. Currently, Stacy is Senior Vice President and Corporate Compliance Officer at the Northern Trust. When I, when I look at my life journey and I say that, you know, in one generation, we go from sharecroppers to a shareholder, just in one generation, that it, it becomes my life mission to help others. And, and I feel like if I can help somebody, then my living will not be in vain. Stacy, welcome to the podcast. We're glad you're here. Uh, thank you, uh, Frank. Thanks uh, for inviting me, both of you. And um, I appreciate the invitation. Yeah, we, lo- we look forward to hearing how you built your success and perhaps some lessons that we can learn from your journey. Uh, let's start with our typical question. So you were born, and then what? Okay, so I was born... Uh, in a, a, a large family, so my mother is the oldest of 15 children. 15? 15. Yeah, and my, uh, my father is the middle of 11 children. Wow. And uh, I am the eighth of 10 children. And so I have uh, always been in community. Uh, Were they with, all in Illinois? No. Uh, most uh, of my, my parents really follow the black migration story uh, from the South to Chicago looking for in the a South. better life. So born, uh, they were born and raised in uh, the outskirts of Memphis, Tennessee. Okay. My dad was actually born in Bolton, Tennessee, uh, which hails back to the original landowners who uh, we actually took the name of the slave owners that um, owned my the Bolton. great Bolton. Well, it's interesting. My family's uh, a Petway is a plantation named yeah. myself uh, from the Petway plantation. E- exactly. Yeah, so, so and and now Bolton, Tennessee, is a, a beautiful uh, uh, upscale suburban area um, full of. Um, it's an agricultural college town. Uh, it's very interesting. So, so my parents came from there. Uh, and I was actually born in Chicago. Most of my older siblings were born in Tennessee. Um, my dad was looking for a better life, and so he moved uh, as the migration happened to Chicago because jobs were plentiful. What did he do? He actually was a parking lot attendant. He parked cars uh, for a living. Um, we were on the west side of Chicago when I was born. I was born in Cook County Hospital. And uh, interestingly enough, at that time, we were, there were eight of us, um, and we were living in a one-bedroom apartment. And eight of you. And wow. eight, eight of us in a one-bedroom apartment on the west side. And what, what a lot of people don't know is that uh, at that time, they were building up uh, public housing in Chicago because of the the conditions, the living conditions of uh, kind of most places on the west side. And so we were actually waitlisted 
to move to Cabrini Green. You couldn't get into Cabrini Green. And so you had to, this was in 1963 ish, where we were waitlisted um, to get in because you couldn't get in. And how old were you at the time? I I wasn't born at that time. And I was born two years later. Okay. And then we uh, ultimately couldn't get in there. So a friend of my dad found a place where they had these houses. Um, in the south suburbs, which was considered like another uh, journey back south um, at the time. And so we moved from the west side to Markham, Illinois. Okay, sure. And and I was two when we moved there. And so uh, it was an interesting dynamic. And I think my entire kind of journey really changed. My life could have been far different had we stayed on the west side. So did you know your grandparents yes. very well? How about your great-grandparents? Uh, yes. Um, so so my great-grandfather, uh, I come from a line of preachers, so my, my great-grandfather was a preacher, my grandfather was a preacher, um, and they lived in, you know, the country country where you know, there were outhouses and and I hated and every summer we had to go uh, to the country and I hated going to the country with bugs and you know they had cows and pigs and you know we were considered city boys because we were from Chicago you wore right? sho- shoes and, shoes. Yeah. <laughs> and um and so how many generations went back to actually working on the plantation uh, so back to my, because by this time they is that had, the proper phrase by the way. If I no, it, it's it, the the plantation era is during the era of slavery and then ultimately Jim Crow. Um, then they became sharecroppers, yeah. so they own their own uh, land, but they uh, in many cases they were working the land for well, other people, yeah. and so they were sharing in the land. Uh, and the crops, and my parents picked cotton. So, uh, you know, picking cotton, uh, understanding how that whole process worked. It is a grueling work. You know, even though you are getting paid for the haul, you still have grueling work ahead of you. So your grandparents were sharecroppers? Grandparents and parents were sharecroppers. And then your great-grandparents... Jess were born into slavery as children were, okay. were released from slavery in the 18, 18, my, my grandfather, my great grandfather was born in 1860. So then your parents are in Tennessee when the Jim Crow laws. Oh yeah, absolutely. And how did that? Uh, so, so they understand and it's, it's my, my father has passed away. My mother uh, recounts a lot of the stories of what they had to deal with, whether it uh, had to do with uh, whites only water fountains, um, uh, certainly being in segregated places, even uh, something as, as simple as just unjust weights of how much cotton had been picked. Mm-hmm. I am told <laughs> when you pick cotton, you understand how much it weighs because you've you've picked it so often. And so there would be time where you know the owner, proprietor, uh, would adjust how much was picked. Um, this is, 
you know, instead of being 40 pounds, they would pay you for 30 pounds or 20 wow. pounds. Sure. And so, so uh, I think that the stories are, are not dissimilar to other stories of growing up in Jim Crow South um, and being denied certain basic rights and privileges. And I think it moves us to kind of Chicago for the better life. And we certainly, we seem to enjoy a better life in comparison to the life that they live. So could they sell their land in Tennessee? So that's interesting um, because in many cases, the land was stolen from them. Um, They had quite a significant amount of acres. It was stolen in different deals, stolen... In, in different ways as a result of any infraction of either the law or taxes could sure. result in your land being summarily taken from you. So when they moved from Tennessee to the Chicago land area, if you will, was their land already taken from them? Yeah, it was. So it would have been my grandparents' land and they had multiple acres of land. But by the time uh, my mom moved out again she was the oldest um there was a significant amount of land that had been taken to pay taxes or to pay other things and so you have to sell off land in order to do it and because you are at the whim of whomever uh is buying the land it's it's basically stolen from you it's taken for a fraction of its worth yeah absolutely so that, you know, they didn't have a whole lot of bargaining mm-hmm. power. So it's interesting. So is your, is your grandparents still alive? No, my grandparents okay. are not. So, so with your mom, do you have, my, my grandma's still alive, and oftentimes I'll find myself um, a weekend um, listening to stories. And oh. I, I mean, is, is there any stories that, that, that stick out? No, you, pl- plenty of stories. I mean, um, stories of my uncle who, who would get in trouble with the law and a, a part of his bail with, they would take land so that's how the bail would get paid until you know all of his land was gone and 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 he was destitute and let's put like a range of like what time in the 19 so it was probably because my mom was born in 1933 so it was between the 1920s all the way up to the 1950s where they were still so we're talking 1950s not i mean 70 years ago. Yeah, yeah. Right? This is not a long time. No, that, that's what, I think that that's what people don't get. And, and so um, a, a lot of times when we talk about race relations and we talk about the various suspicions that happen on uh, multiple sides where, you know, people are a, a bit reluctant and hesitant, uh, it's because this is not something that is history book history. This is lived history. Yeah. I mean, my mother directly realizes that uh, she was put in positions where uh, she had to uh, take care of not only her children, but other people's children. Uh, my, my mom was a domestic, so she had, and I used to always say, well, who took care of your children while you were taking care yeah. of somebody else's children? And she was like, my kids had to take care of themselves. Yeah, the oldest one. Is- the oldest one was yeah. in charge and had to take care of the younger ones. Um, and, and she said she had a, a, a white family, uh, where she would go and she be would the help. be the help. That's Absolutely. exactly what she was. And so, um, they would all get on buses and they would go and then they would be parsed out to the various houses and she would be the help. 
sounds very similar to uh, some of the conversations I've had with Absolutely. my grandma and yeah. my, my mother-in-law who's passed away where in that time it was not uncommon um, for especially for black women Absolutely. Um, to be the help. So, so you're in. So, you, you, your family moves to Chicago, yep. and are you, are you guys finding that it's it, better? It's it's as far as as far as yeah, being a black being, being, a, being black a black family in yeah. Chicago. You certainly understand um, you understand the dynamics of Chicago racism, which is very different uh, from racism in in the South. Um, so, I went to an all black grade school, but then I was bust. To an all-white high school, and what high so school did you go? Thorn Ridge. Okay, okay, and at that time it was seventy percent um, white, and black kids were bust in from Harvey and Markham. And what was that dynamic like with the the white kids in the? I mean, it was uh, as you would think at, at that time. Um, we were bust in. We had people that did not want us there. We had people screaming epithets at our bus. We had, you know, rocks thrown at the bus. We and again, had you were born in 1965. Five. So you're in high school in the late 70s, yes. early 80s. Yes. So again, we're talking... Not long ago. 30 years ago. 40 years, 40 years <laughs> ago. <laughs> where people are throwing Absolutely. rocks at the bus and yelling yeah. racial epithets. Yes. Um, so, so you're in high school, and are you thinking about, you, know, you said your, your grandfather and your great-grandfather were preachers. Yeah. So are you saying, hey, this is what I want to do? I want to be a preacher? No. Okay. Uh, no, I, I, I wanted to be a businessman. I wanted to work in an office. I wanted to uh, accomplish something different. Um, and um, we certainly went to church as a family. I think that... Um, Faith was a, a big priority uh, in in my house. Uh, uh, I was a musician, so um, my brother and I played uh, the piano. So I think I was the church musician when I was twelve, um, and I managed um, to 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 do that. And and I played for the three choirs. Now explain to people, being yeah. a musician in a black church, yeah. that's a big deal. It's a big deal. <laughs> that's a really big deal. It was, a, it was I was 12. <laughs> yeah. I, I was right. the minister of music and I had uh, the adult choir, the young adult choir, and the youth choir that I trained vocally and um, ran all the music. Uh, and so, so that was unique, but, but it was a part of kind of the dynamic of my uh, family. My family, um, are uh, very talented singers and musicians throughout uh, my my mom and my dad's side. Some of them uh, in Memphis were were quite well renowned blues singers, and um, and some of them uh, that ultimately migrated to Detroit became fairly well renowned gospel singers. Yeah, yeah. I'm from Detroit originally, so oh. I'm <laughs> very interested. In now. Did you feel, sorry to go back to this, but did you feel that getting bused to this high school gave you more opportunities or was it more of a struggle than if you had gone to a high school that was closer to where you lived or wasn't as integrated? So I, I think it was good for me because I think it taught me much earlier than college, um, how to encounter 
and um, really relate to people of different races. I think it, it was helpful for me to be in that environment, to be challenged. I was a very, uh, a very good student in grade school. There is a perception that um, if, if you went to an all-black grade school, when you go to an all-white high school, that you won't perform as well. Uh, certainly, I had my fears. Uh, but once I realized that I could compete with uh, the students at the school, I was always on the honor roll. I, uh, I had classes with the top students uh, in the school and, and, and performed well. It was interesting because it did boost my confidence. But I will tell you, at that time, there were teachers that were just as racist as students. And and you could feel it in how uh, they taught you, how they questioned you, how they did not, they did not expect excellence from you. And so because they didn't expect it, a lot of students performed at the level of the expectation of the teacher. Did you feel like you were able, because you were a good student, able to change some minds of whether it was teachers or other students? I, I, I do uh, in the sense that I began to make friends with um, quite a few white kids that I knew I was their only black friend. But I also knew that I was perceived as the safe black guy. That's, that's interesting because, so how, how would you think or how do you think that prepared you for your future, shaped your your thoughts as your career moved forward? I, I think that it, one, it helped me, it helped me understand how to relate. Um, it helped me become comfortable, both in college, because I went straight, straight to college. It helped me understand how to relate with people that were different and understand that even though our past may not have been different i i did have something in common and 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 that is what i think helped me more than anything so uh, you you have you're come from a family of there's eight of you there are 10 of us so ten of you so how many of your brothers went to a all white high school so or oh, more majority yeah. white yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah the majority yeah so i the first Four of my siblings went to a majority black high school. Okay. Um, and then they started busing. Sure. Um, and the next three of my siblings and myself went to a predominantly white high school. And I ask this question because I have family members that we live in the suburbs. Yep. And I got family members that live in West Side. Yeah. And we come to family reunions. When it's we get together, the, the the thought as far as the, the lens from which I see the world and how my kids see the world oh, absolutely. are completely different. Yeah. Let alone in your family, you know, your brothers and sisters are seeing the world absolutely. from a very different lens. Yet to come home. No, I, I learned I learned code switching much earlier yes. than most folks. And, so you know what code, code switching, switching is. I know what you mean. But so, I actually know what you mean too, but explain yeah. for the, the listeners. Yeah. So, what, so what code, code switching is. is really being able to adapt to your environment. Most uh, black families at that time in their home, there is a vernacular that is you know specific to the black community. 
and you speak it and you it's it's an unthought of thing you just you go into your regular dialect uh when you're home or when you're with um when you're with family members and then when you are out in at school or um, when you pick up a phone you're not sure who it is yeah (laughs) you you code switch you Uh. switch uh to make sure that you are um, kind of speaking in the uh, the dialect of the majority, and and it becomes so automatic that I don't think most black folks that do it even think about it. Um, it just it's you can see it, it whether you're in the barber shop or you know you 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 just you, it just happens. There's now a you went to a majority black school, great really, school, great, great, really up until age fourteen. Yes, right. So when did you learn code switching? Was it right away? Right you, away. You realized, hey, I can't speak like this with yeah. the majority white students. Right. Was right away. And 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 did your parents prep you for that? No, no, and, and and I don't think they had to. There were certainly harsh realities, and I think that the teachers from my grade school prepped us. There's a, there's a quite a lot of a kind of indoctrination that it's going to be different when you get over into that other school. And, 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 and they didn't say it in quite uh, those politically correct terms. I think that, you know, teachers at that time were, were very invested because most teachers lived in the communities in which they taught. And so um, there was a sense of in order for you to thrive in this environment, there were harsh realities that they had to hit you with that they would probably get, you know, they would probably get thrown out of education today. So so now you're you got this for those you know he's got a really really powerful role at Northern Trust. <laughs> do, do do you think that code switching or individuals that are in the minority, whether you're black, you know, Jewish, Latino, being able to while in Rome do as the Romans do, does that disproportionately help someone's career, or do you think someone who can as they, the young folks say, keep it real, yeah. can, can get, can still kind of bust through that where I'm just going to be me and I'm going to let my work and my results speak for themselves. No, I, I think it's an excellent question because I, I, uh, I mentor quite a few young folks and, and I try to explain to them, it doesn't matter as much if you choose to code switch as much as you having the ability to code switch. I want to make sure you have the ability uh, because if you have the ability, then that means that you have mastered both. Um, If you don't have the ability and say, I'm going to be me, you will likely not succeed. And, And that is the difference. I code switch with you. Mm-hmm. I, I code switch with a lot of black executives wow. <laughs> at Northern that people will be surprised the types of conversations that we have. Uh, but it also is as I've gotten to an older age and, and I'm far more comfortable in myself and my career path and my understanding of others perception of me, I sometimes will switch to vernacular in the middle of a room of all white people. I think that the other side of the coin is when you are code switching, sometimes you get heat yeah. from black folks yeah. that 
may not understand the I, dynamics and the complexity of that. Absolutely. And I think that you get heat when people don't know whether or not you know that what you're doing. Um, I think people are nervous that that speaking in vernacular is equivalent with ignorance or equivalent with lack of education or equivalent with lack of intelligence. And so to be able to let people understand this is a choice. It is my choice that when I'm around certain people, I will exercise that choice because it feels like home. It feels homey to me. And if you are my homie, then I feel comfortable being at home with you both in dialect and in handshake and, and every kind of other uh, type of connection that we have because we have connections on multiple levels. But then there are other, like my kids, I get nervous about them. I, I get nervous about their ability to to switch because they have only had all white schools and they've only had all white friends. And so, which is why I take them around their cousins <laughs> often enough so that they can understand that there are many ways to be black and there is no one way to be black. You know, you, I want you to understand the experience of blackness. I want you to understand the history of blackness. And then you can choose your way to be black, but you have to understand the road that has been paved for you has been paved with a lot of blood, sweat, tears, uh, fears, and, and the like. And, and I think that they have uh, accepted that responsibility, that there is a responsibility that you have um, to, to carry what you have been given and to help others. And now, so you're at a predominantly white school. Is there a teacher that had an impact? You know, it's, it's interesting because there was a teacher that had an impact. His name was Mr. Barkley, and I actually kept up with him throughout. Um, he's retired now, but... Um, he had an impact on so many African-American students at this school. And he was the only black teacher in the school. Mm. And he used to, he had a method, uh, but they let him go in and look at all of the eighth graders' test scores. And so when you're going your freshman year, you pick your classes. And I remember when I got my, my registration for my freshman year, all the classes were different than what I picked. And he went in and changed all of my classes and put me in honors classes. Mm. Wow. So he had to manually go in. He manually went in and he, he looked at test scores and he did this for black students. He just would look at the test scores and he said, nope, you should be here. You should be here. You should be here. And I ended up with that particular registration and that class load. Again, that would get him fired today. Uh, but he did that to ensure that high potential black students were placed appropriately. So throughout high school, did he check in with you? Yes, he was my English teacher. 
and he was a beloved English teacher for, for all students. I think he is the teacher that had the most structured class with the most respectful students. Uh, he demanded it and people gave it to him. And, and you know, from, from the beginning of, of class, it was just an interesting dynamic. Um, as a teacher, he had that ability to carve th that many lives out of what could be a traumatizing experience uh, kind of coming into that environment. But he threw us into the fire, which caused us to be really forged uh, and understand the heat of competition and being in proximity to the top students. Did your high school change at all from your freshman year to your senior year in any way, positive, negative, as more and more kids were bust in? Um, you know, the school would close down at least once a year for fear of a race riot. So it was like the school would, would close down because there were fears and concerns of potential uh, race riots for whatever reason. So... Those changes then um, started white flight in the areas where the school was. So now the school is 100% black. So by your senior year, it went from a majority white to... No, it, it took about 15 years for that to happen gradually. But uh, what typically South Holland, Dalton were typically white enclaves of you know middle class folks started to become more and more accessible to black middle-class families, which then caused a lot of white flight in those areas. And the school quickly began to turn, um, and it now is an all-black high school. You're applying to colleges. Yep. And where, where would you, where were you looking? So it was interesting for me because I was the first in my uh, family to go to college. I remember, you know, I, I listen to students now and they talk about you know, my parents who helped my homework, my parents helped me with my, like, that is so foreign to me that, like, I would go like, why would your parents help you with your homework? And it just was a foreign concept. Like, it's your homework. Like, why would you involve your parents? Um... And they were like, well, what, what did you do when you had a problem that you couldn't figure out? I was like, well, just look in the book until I figured it out. Yeah. And I think that in some ways we do our kids a disservice by providing um, this kind of automatic, you know, and they've got the internet, but this kind of automatic uh, accessibility to the, to the answers where I had to just keep searching until I found the answer. Mm -hmm. um, and my parents were very education focused, but there was no, no ability to help. And, and I don't think I ever contemplated a rationale why parents would help. Did your siblings help at all? No, I never contemplated that either. That somebody would help me with my homework. It, that did not compute to me, it didn't, which is, I think is what created such grit in me mm -hmm. to power through issues, situations that I may not have an answer for right now. Uh, because 
those options, whether they existed or not, I didn't foresee them, you know, in the way that I think people do now. I didn't believe that that was an, a viable option, at least, that, you know, I would go to my parents and say, I can't figure out this algebra problem or I can't. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was later that I realized, I remember doing my financial aid forms uh, and I had all of the the paperwork and and I went and asked my parents, I was like, can I have your taxes so I can do this? And they gave me their taxes and I completed everything and I ended up getting scholarships and financial aid and everything to go to college and I got accepted into quite a few and so I I just assumed all students were doing that I assumed that every student every high school senior was in charge of their college education and I assumed that they all did what I was doing and, and um, I think that it was later when I realized that many people had many more, uh, you know, pieces of help um, mm-hmm. coming from many directions that I, I realized that maybe I was the anomaly. I, I, you know, couldn't quite figure it out. It was, it was interesting enough. My mother, you know, constantly uh, well-educated. My mother got her GED when she was 41. So both my parents... Uh, neither graduated. My father didn't finish much school. And it wasn't until I was doing my kind of financial aid that I realized my father couldn't read. Wow. So, so there, is a, there is this notion um, a, around all of that. And my mother, even to this day, she reads the newspaper out loud to whomever is visiting. She reads the newspaper out loud. And it wasn't until later I realized why she did that. Wow. She would, at the breakfast table, she would read the newspaper to my father. That's how he was up on current events. It's because she would read the newspaper. And to this that's day, crazy. that's what she does. She reads the newspaper out loud. And um, it's just, it's, it's in hindsight, it is uh, a, a remarkable kind of way. Because we never really knew that he couldn't read because it didn't, you know, it, it, there was no need for it. It was, you know, when you've got 10 kids, you're not like reading a bedtime story to each yeah. kid. You know, I stayed in one bedroom with five of my brothers. So it's like, it's a three bedroom house. Mm-hmm. There's not a whole lot of the girls had a room. The boys had a room. Mom and dad had a room. Um, and so, so I think that, you know, with respect to all of these Things help make you uh, into the person that you are. So, you, so you go to Cal? Where do you, where do you go to college? From? Uh, Northern Illinois. Went to Northern in DeKalb. Yes. And what was the racial makeup at the time for Northern? Uh, Northern was still. I mean, it's probably still. still it's. Maybe ninety-five percent white. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Was it other? Yeah. Did Did you find two things? Did you find your experience in high school helped you? Yeah, it adjust? prepared me. It, it, and I then was. Did you face the similar? Yeah, yeah. You know, remember, it's northern is in Decal. It's like in the middle of farm country, uh, and so I was I was far more prepared than I would say many of my um, kind of. Chicago 
contemporaries. I, I, I was far more prepared for the the kind of gathering together when when uh, the professor would say, "Okay, get in groups." What would usually happen is the white kids would have gone to school together, mm-hmm. or would be a part of the same fraternity or sorority or or whatever, and and there would be these kind of natural groups that would form, and then. The, either the black kids would be left or the kids that didn't have a whole lot of uh, connections and drives would be left and they would get into the group that would usually be the lower performing groups. And so just by natural selection, there was this concentration of the people that didn't have connections to be in groups which usually performed worse than these other groups that had access to 30 years of the test in their sorority house or fraternity house. Um, and they were all performing well because they had this historical context for all of the classes where many of the people that ended up in the group were always the first to go to college. Mm. So there was no historical context and those groups didn't always tend to perform well. And I just was a, a very different person by then because I had gotten over my shyness and gotten over my, uh, you know, integration phobias. And I would look at the smartest people I would see in the class and I would go directly to them and say, I want to be in this group. I didn't wait for everybody to get partnered up. I would go and select partners that I thought would help. Um, and, And that helped me is being out. This is 1983 to 1987? Yes, exactly. It's interesting because um, I, I could just see, I could picture in my head, you going into the groups of family white. What yep. was their reaction? I'm sure it was. In in many cases, it was like, oh, we were gonna we were gonna get together. I was like, well, can I be in your group? Most people's politeness will not allow them to say no. You can't be in our group. Yeah. And and my kind of dogged persistence that I am not going to be denied just because I don't have a legacy of friends or family or others uh, that has given me a leg up. I, I, I just had a persistence to say, can I be in this group? Well, it's interesting because you had mentioned a word that I tell my I have three boys and the word grit, yeah. that, that travels. Oh, yeah. I mean, I mean some, some characteristics don't travel well, yeah. but grit travels. And it seems like when you went to Northern Illinois, it traveled. Um, and it helped you out. It helped me out immensely, and 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 I did I did well. I was, um, you know, I did well in college. I had some leadership responsibilities, um, you know, with both the Black Student Union as well as, um, you know, Student of the Month, and you know, various uh, various opportunities were afforded um, to me in college. Did you have any resentment? for the kids you went to high school with or the kids in college that maybe were staying, some, staying amongst themselves? You know, it's, it's really interesting. Resentment is so wasted. And, and, and so is revenge. I think I wanted equity. And even when I didn't have it, I think I pretended like I had it. Mm. I, even to, I would create a persona that appeared equitable, um, even if it meant I had to, you know, 
kind of inflate, you know, my vacations or, you know, or, or some of my experience just to appear at equity. Mm-hmm. I, I didn't like the notion of being perceived um, as less than. And so I would try to do what I could to be perceived as an equal, even if was not the experience of the other person. I can't help what they think, mm-hmm. but I can help what they know. What did you major in? So I majored in organization and corporate communications with a minor in English. And then I went to Purdue to get my MBA. And so I got an MBA. Um, right out of college? No, I waited. I worked uh, a little bit in corporate. Um, my entire career has been my first job out of college was across the street at Kemper Financial Services at 120 South LaSalle. And I was a compliance administrator there. And I worked there for five years. And then I went to LaSalle Bank where I was a compliance officer there and worked there for 15 years. I think it's the law in Chicago. If you work in banking, at some point you have to work at LaSalle. Yeah. LaSalle's <laughs> no longer around. Yeah, we all had to check the exactly. LaSalle box. So. Uh, and so, right. so, and then I came from LaSalle after the Bank of America acquisition um, to Northern, and I've been here for 10 years. Did you uh, do your MBA full-time or was it part-time? I was part-time. It was the, an executive MBA. Okay. Um, so you weren't commuting back to uh, yeah, West, West Lafayette? Yeah. No. I was a lot of weekends. I did well, drive down there for the weekends, but I also I live in the south suburbs, so it's not that bad of a drive. And uh, you have... Are you, you and I have married? a master's. Yes, I've married two kids. And I have a master's in theology as well. Um, so that is an interesting... Is that your, gra- is your grandfather and... and, and you know, I've always been... Uh, uh, a student of the Bible, and I've been a student of world religions in general. And so, I always tell people I learned more in seminary than I did in business school. Mm-hmm. I, I learned far more, and, and just in terms of how to manage people into where you want them to be. And a part of that is understanding people's gifts. A, a lot of managers say, "Here's what I want you to do." I try to understand what is it that you are naturally good at doing and then craft a job that helps you do that so that I can ensure success for you and for me because I have you doing the right job. And a lot of times they used to call me the employee whisperer because they would give me all of these people that were having struggles in um, and under their current managers and, and say, hey, well, you know, why don't you take this person? Mm-hmm. And I was just like, hey, you guys are making me the island of misfit toys. <laughs> <laughs> but it was really because I would listen to them and then I realized, oh, you shouldn't be in a job where you have to talk to people. Yeah. Like, that's not your thing. And so if I can craft a job that allows you to do the thing that you are really good at, then that helps you feel accomplished and successful and it helps me to meet my objectives and so i i learned that more in seminary than i did in business Mm. school Um. 
do you talk to your kids? You, you have two, two boys. A boy and a girl. You have a boy, boy and a girl. And a girl. Uh, do you talk to your kids at all about where your family comes from? Oh, absolutely. What you, what you grew up in? Yeah. We do family family reunions every year. Uh, in Memphis, we rent out a school. I remember yeah. it's 15 kids on my mom's side. And my mom had 10. And then her sister had 10. And, you know, so our family reunion is probably three, 400 people. I think it's I think it's the blueprint. It's the yeah. it's the black family union blueprint. Yeah, because we, we go down to Alabama. Yeah, we run out of school, and yeah, it's, it's like three four hundred people. We run out of school. Yeah, and um, we we play baseball in the baseball Soft, diamond. We do the softball. Yeah, we, to have, yeah. we uh we you know they have a basketball tournament. Um, we they cook for days, yes. and um you know we have a live band and. Um, it's do, you have, a, do you have a talent show? Yes, we, we have, have, talent have, show. have a talent show. There is a, a, <laughs> a, a young girl's uh, tea party where they have these huge hats and yeah. they dress up and they do a tea party. It's, it's, but, but Can you name them, all three or four hundred of them? Oh, no, absolutely yeah. not. I, 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 every person uh, that... Like I'm in Memphis, so Frank can sneak in is what I'm getting at. Oh, absolutely, if you wanted to, yeah, absolutely. And, uh, every every driving down the street, somebody go, oh, that's your cousin. Oh, that's your cousin. I mean, just anywhere in Memphis, there's no place that I go that somebody doesn't tell me, oh, that's your cousin. With me, when we went to uh, so our family, the, the uh, Petway Plantations in G's Bid, uh-huh. and so it's interesting. I'm not sure if you experience this, where you actually will get introduced to white relatives. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and they'll have the whole, yeah. you know. Uh, yeah, the so histories are the history, same. It's the exact same. When we go to Bolton, Tennessee, because that's where the family reunions do, it's like when every people see our last name, they kind of look at us twice. Yeah, Cause, yeah, absolutely. Because Cause, they understand that the name is connected with, you know, the whole history of, um, you know, cotton. So, so when you have that conversation with your kid, do they feel... 2020 do they understand they understand through the conversations but my kids now go to private school and you know vacation in maui and you know i mean they're privileged kids (laughs) they're privileged not just by black standards they're privileged by any standard and so so you have to you know calibrate the struggle of their grandparents and their great-grandparents with the seeming ease of their lives today. Yeah, that's, it's, uh, so do you, and I'm cheating a little bit here because I know the answer, but it seems when I've always gone to our family reunions that are in Alabama, it seems that the white folks down there are overly nice to show that the past is Is the the past. past. I mean, it's like, Come in the house, have some yeah. food, let me go your feet. You know, we're we're in the in the city of Chicago. Yeah, it's you. You feel a little more t- tension. Do you feel yeah. that where? So so it's it's interesting. I think that for those that are in um, kind of these areas that have had some level of level of diversity, there is a tendency to 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 accept the fact that things have changed and we've got to change. But there are areas within Tennessee and Alabama mm-hmm. where if you go into the deep south, yes. you will be met with the exact same mm. um, yes. the exact same 100%. types of 
uh, racism that you would have been met with in the 40s, 50s, and 60s. And I remember driving to Memphis every year, and I used to just think, why, why do we always have to step, stop off at Effingham? And, and I realized it was only when I got older that my parents kind of shared with us was because that's the only place that the bathroom was safe. That was the only place you could go and have some level of assurance that it would be safe. And I remember, I remember that we would always, it was amazing, my mother would always, um, when we would go in, you know, in Effingham or Cairo and stop off. Cairo. Yeah. <laughs> Last part before you, you start Before getting, you get into yeah, the deep south. So Cairo. all black families Cairo, would Illinois. stop in Cairo, Illinois. And we buy mother would bring her, her, her a roll of toilet paper and some cleaner. And she would always clean the bathroom after we would have used it. Because she said, I wanted to clean for the next black family. Yeah, we're going to uh, Monroe, Louisiana. Yeah, that, that, you're yeah, definitely so stop we, we, off. We, we always do. We always yeah. stop why off. Did, why did Cairo become because, up because it was kind of safe and it would have been right as you're about to get out of the Illinois. <laughs> it's at the tip. That's yeah. Chicago here. Yeah. Cairo here. Yeah. Deep South. Deep South. Five miles. Five miles. So, south. Yes. And it gets you. It gets you Tennessee, into Tennessee, yeah. Arkansas, Arkansas all, all of those kind of branches to the south. And so a lot of black families would stop there to gas up because you would just be about have run out of gas by that time. Yeah. And you didn't want to gas up in some small, Vicksburg. dark Vicksburg. You didn't, Vicksburg. you didn't want to gas up in these kind of small, dark rural communities because it was not safe. No. And so Cairo was lit um, and mm-hmm. it was very well touristed. And so you would always gas up in places right, right where... Right before you get to that bridge. Right before you get to the bridge, right? I've traveled many times. Many times, every summer of my childhood. So, so, so those are the kind of commonalities if you've if you've even seen green book it is kind of akin to the movie green book where there was there is a list of places where black families can stay that will accept black families and uh, Cairo was one of those kind of places where you know in the early 60s 70s you could be relatively safe because mind you you got everyone Came up here for a better life, yes. but most of their family still was in, the was in the south, and so you wanted to be able to have some level of uh, kind of safety when you had to stop off for gas. Everybody gassed up in Cairo. Okay, so professionally, professionally, you end up at Northern Trust, and what year did you end up at Northern uh, Trust? 2010. Okay. 2010. So about 10 years. Yes, to just finish my 10-year anniversary, just celebrated that. Congrats. And were you always in compliance? Always, for the, the 30 years of my career. How did you pick compliance? It picked me. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I couldn't find a job out of college and ended up working with a temp agency and the temp agency sent me on an assignment um, at Kemper Financial Services in the legal department. And I began to assist the lawyers with some of their work. And I you know, overperformed. And they was like, well, hey, we can craft a role for you. 
Um, and so that role was really, why don't you do this compliance stuff? It's really not law stuff. and We don't like doing it. And, you know, you don't have to be a lawyer to do this. And then it just began to be a growing industry. Um, so both... Um, Certainly the last 10 years. Yeah. It's well, been a growing well industry. brokerage compliance, asset management compliance. Um, and then I went over to LaSalle Bank and started doing banking compliance. And so you, you pick up a lot of knowledge and experience. Now... I, you know, I can have my staff as lawyers because it is a field that lawyers want to go into. I just, I do a guest lecture at Northwestern Law School, at U of I Law School, at Loyola Law School, um, because lawyers are interested in um, corporate compliance as, as, as a career. Um, and they want to hear about how compliance officers um, could be a, a good career path for lawyers. What, what is the one thing that you may be talking to a younger version of yourself, whether it's the 14-year-old getting bust into high school or the 18-year-old about to go to DeKalb? What's one thing that you'd want to tell yourself? I, I, I think if I were to, to talk to 14-year-old me about to go um, to a predominantly white high school via busing, is they're not that different from you, intellectually, emotionally, or any other way. And, and I think that that was something that was in, in many ways ingrained in us to the point of fear that we were so different and it was going to be so different. Once I was able to get over that, um, the experience itself was, was a good experience. And what I would tell my 18-year-old self, kind of being a high achiever, is that the answers are in the book. If you could name a quote or a saying that you think, uh, something that defines your life. So for me, you know, I think about you know, my father was just a, a wonderful, loving, gentle man, um, irrespective of kind of the fact that I didn't know he could read or I didn't know, you know, all of the struggles of being, um, you know, a man trying to to raise 10 kids. And my mom, you know, who you know, who can work and have a babysitter, babysit that many kids. So my mom was a stay-at-home mother. Uh, my father, my first job out of college, I made more than my father had made. You know, so my father made what he made and still supported us. And we weren't wealthy, but we certainly weren't impoverished. And, and so the level of respect that I have for my dad uh, is, is so specific and, and, and it's interesting that my office on 17th floor of the Madison building overlooks the parking lot where my father parked cars for 37 years. And so when I, when I look at my life journey and I say that, you know, in one generation, we go from sharecroppers to a shareholder, just in one generation, that it, it becomes my 
life mission to help others. And, and I feel like if I can help somebody, then my living will not be in vain. It's also a song that my mom used to sing all the time. Um, that if I can help somebody as I pass along, if I can cheer somebody with a word or song, if I can show somebody that they're traveling wrong, then my living will not be in vain. That's a great way to end yeah, it. A, yeah. I, I, thank you so much no for joining us. This has been a phenomenal uh, podcast. Uh, this is great. So thank you sure. very much. <laughs> I also want to thank our executive producer, Mallory Waxman, and the Northern Trust uh, recording team for making this possible. Uh, We look forward to uh, the next podcast, so uh, stay tuned.